0: Okay, we've got two handouts at the back, which you can take uh, when you're done, or if you haven't, if you've gotten them, that's fine, and uh, I'll explain those later. Um, But first, we have our requisite joke. What would we be without our joke to start things off? An older preacher told the story of a young minister interviewing for his first pastorate, and the pulpit committee had invited him to come over to the church for the interview. And the committee chairman said, son... Do you know the Bible pretty good? And the young minister said, yeah, pretty good. The chairman said, well, what part do you know? He said, I know the New Testament best. Well, what part of the New Testament do you know best? Well, several parts. And the chairman said, well, why don't you tell us the story of the prodigal son? And the young man said, fine. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night, and he fell upon stony ground, and the thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife, Gamora, came by and carried him down to the Ark of Moses to take care of. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the Ark, he caught his hair in a limb and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards, he did hunger. And the ravens came and fed him. The next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. He said, throw her down, boys, throw her down. And they said, how many times should we throw her down? Till seven times seven? And he said, nay, but 70 times seven. And they threw her down 490 times. And she burst asunder in their midst. And they picked up 12 baskets of the leftovers. And in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? The committee chairman suddenly interrupted the young minister and said to the remainder of the committee, fellas, I think we ought to ask the church to call him as our minister. He's awfully young, but he sure does know his Bible. (laughs) Now, I think there may be a parallel here for us that before we started studying Zechariah, you may have thought you knew your Bible. (laughs) And now after studying it, you may think you're more confused than ever because I know, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you cannot see the forest for the trees. And that is exactly the feeling that I have about now in our study of Zachariah. So I want to take a step back and try to get a perspective. And we're going way back because God chose a people for himself when he called Abraham back in Genesis 12, and he promised to bless him and make make him a blessing to all the nations of the world. And God also promised to give Abraham and his descendants a very specific land where they could live safely and freely worship the Lord. And God promised to bless his people when they obeyed him and walk in his ways and curse them when they worshiped other gods and were disobedient. Sometimes the people obeyed, but often they did not. An Old Testament history shows a cycle or a pattern of sin. And it goes like this. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Israel served the Lord and worshipped him. Then they fell into sin. God raised up a prophet or a a judge to help them. They cried out for deliverance. God rescued them. And they worshipped the Lord and the cycle repeated itself. It's kind of like our lives every day of the week, isn't it? And All through Israel's history, God promised that one day he would send his shepherd, the ultimate deliverer, Messiah, who would rescue his people. So two of the prophets God sent to Israel, to Israel, the northern kingdom, were Hosea and Amos. The people did not heed their warnings, and in 722 B.C., Israel was conquered by the Assyrians. The people were taken into captivity and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. God sent more prophets, including Isaiah and Jeremiah to warn Judah, the southern kingdom, those warnings again fell on deaf ears. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, utterly destroyed Solomon's magnificent temple, and they hauled the people off to Babylon. God did not desert his people in Babylon, but he provided prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel to exhort and encourage them while they were in exile. They told them they would return to the land that God had promised them. They would rebuild the temple, and God's hand of blessing would again be on them. And Judah's captivity, as you know, would last 70 years until the Persian king Cyrus directed Ezra to return to Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Well... As you know, the building project began, but the work eventually stalled. And God wanted to encourage them to continue the reconstruction, but he also wanted them to know that he was their God even yet and that he would protect them and take care of them. God was faithful to his promises, and the temple was completed in 516 B.C. Now, chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah present God's admonitions to the nation through the form of two oracles that look forward to the messianic king and his kingdom. These chapters were probably written several years after the first eight chapters that we studied. And in chapter 9, we saw that Judah was given both short-term and long-term prophecies. And the short-term prophecies were given to remind the people that God always keeps his word. And even though it doesn't seem like it, the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer is on the way. Now, the future conquest of the world by Alexander the Great is predicted in stunning detail, naming the cities and nations that are going to be conquered and destroyed exactly, exactly as it happens in 333 B.C., 200 years later. Zechariah prophesies that Jerusalem will be spared I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And that is precisely what happens in Alexander Spares Jerusalem. A godless, ruthless man is the hammer in God's hand to judge, punish, and crush the nations who had dared to touch the apple of his eye. God used a rank pagan to save his chosen people. And the fulfillment of this very short-term prophecy was to remind God's people that the long-term prophecy would just as surely happen. And if God can judge the nations and save Israel through a godless pagan man, can you imagine what he will do to save his people in the end time when he comes as the divine conqueror? And then Zechariah spells out the long-term prophecy, and he tells the people that their king is coming to them. And he describes this king in remarkable detail, so they'll recognize him when he arrives. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey there could not have been a clearer picture of Jesus. And what we know now that they did not realize then is that the Messiah is not coming once, but twice. So the last part of chapter 9 describes the future messianic kingdom. There will again be a giant battle, and the armies of the world will amass themselves against Israel. But verse 16 says, and the "'The Lord their God will save them in that day "'as the flock of his people, "'for they are the stones in a, of a crown "'sparkling in his land. "'What comeliness and beauty will be theirs.'" So with these glorious promises as the backdrop, we move to chapter 10. And Zechariah continues to encourage God's people with the truth that God has not, has not, and will not ever abandon or forsake his people. And Zechariah answers the question that the Apostle Paul asked hundreds of years later in Romans 11.1. 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And Zechariah's answer is just as emphatic as Paul's. May it never be. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the words, I will strengthen, I will save, I will bring them back, I will redeem, I will answer them, are repeated throughout this chapter to give assurance that God is is not in the slightest bit iffy about his promises for his people. So the first five verses teach us that when he that when he comes, Messiah will destroy the false shepherds, while verses 6 through 12 describe God's promises of restoration and strength for his people, whom he will regather into their homeland. Chapter 10 begins with the admonition to pray. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. And this verse probably refers back to the last verse of chapter 9, which is describing the millennial kingdom and Messiah's second coming. God's people are admonished to pray and ask God for literal rain so their crops flourish. Israel has always been dependent on rain, and drought was oftentimes a sign of God's judgment on the nation. And instead of asking God who promises rain, Zechariah reminds them that in the past they have followed false gods, they've listened to false prophets, and instead of fleeing from these perpetual enemies of God, they've embraced them and they've listened to them. Verse 2 says, For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. So instead of humbly turning to the Lord and asking for rain for their crops, they've turned to diviners, to false prophets, and their teraphim. Well, what are teraphim? We're going down a bunny trail here. Teraphim were household gods that had been part of the culture for hundreds of years. And the first mention of them in the Bible is back in Genesis 31, where Rachel stole the household idols that belonged to her father Laban, and she hid them in the saddle of the camel that she was riding. In 1 Samuel 19, when we studied that a couple years ago, remember reading how Michael, David's wife, took the household idols and made it like he was in the bed to try to, to deceive Saul's men so they wouldn't catch David and kill him. So these they were obviously some sort of uh, figurine. They were different sizes, and they were part of the pagan culture that had never been completely eradicated from Israel. Well, why did they ask these figures for help? And according to one Hebrew scholar, teraphim were viewed as the guardians and givers of comfortable life. Guardians and givers of comfortable life. The word teraphim comes from the Hebrew word rapha, That may be a word you're familiar with. And the word means to heal, to mend by stitching, to cure, or to make whole. God had long before declared himself to be Jehovah Rapha, the Lord your healer, all the way back in Exodus 15. Three days after they came through the Red Sea, they're out in the wilderness crying. Three days after that deliverance and God reveals himself as Jehovah Rapha. And it's the Lord who says, I am the one who heals, who mends your broken lives, who cures you, who stitches you together again. But they didn't believe him. They tried to determine God's will and manipulate him through the teraphim or through magical or other occult means. And Zechariah says that they are afflicted because they didn't pray and ask God for the rain that they needed. Now, it seems to me almost comical that they thought these teraphim or these stone statues could have, that that they were held in such high regard or that they actually would do anything or they held weight in their decision making or that they were any source of comfort whatsoever. They're just a bunch of rocks, people. But what we hear about them and we think, well, how ridiculous. But John Calvin rightly said, that our hearts are idle factories. And there are a million things that we will turn to before we turn to the Lord, unless we humble ourselves before God, ask for his help, and accept his answers and yield to him. So we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Where do we seek wholeness? Where do we seek comfort? What are the things that we substitute for God and a relationship with him in order to make us feel better about ourselves or our circumstances? And I think these questions give us insight into what idols really are. One uh, teacher said an idol is anything we want more than God, anything we rely on more than God, and anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. Idolatry is the hidden sin driving all other sins. I think that's real profound. So the major sin areas in our lives are often evidence of a deeper issue of our distrust of God. Our idols point to something that we do not believe about God in our heart of hearts. And we convince ourselves that what we crave, what we numb ourselves with or find comfort in, is better than Jesus himself. Ouch. Ouch, not only had idolatry captured the people, but there were also plenty of false teachers who led the people astray. Look at what Zechariah says. The diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. These false teachers offered comfort and healing, but it was all a lie. Throughout Israel's history, false teachers lied about the holiness of God, they lied about the sin of the people, and they lied about the judgment and punishment that was coming because of that sin. What a contrast to God's true prophets who called the people to repent, humble themselves, and obey God. And we know that this, con- this deception continued in Israel's hip- history simply because they did not recognize the Messiah when he came the first time. And we know that Israel will eventually be so desperate for answers that she will make an agreement with the ultimate false shepherd, Antichrist himself, in the end times. God hates these false teachers and shepherds because of what they do to the sheep. Finally, enough is enough, and the Lord deals with them. Verse 3, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the male goats. Well, these male goats were the leaders of the foreign nations, and in particular, their kings that had oppressed Israel. They were powerful and unscrupulous men, and they will also be on the receiving end of Yahweh's anger along with the shepherds. After God punishes these false teachers, he comes to rescue his sheep. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. The Lord will empower the Israelites, and the weak sheep will become as strong as horses. And sheep don't transform into horses readily. And so this is really a miraculous transformation that only the Lord can bring about. In verse 4, we get another rich prophecy about the Messiah, the great rescuer who is the ultimate remedy for his people. From him will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, From him the bow of battle, from him every ruler, all of them together. Well, who is the from him referring to? Let's look back to verse three. The antecedent is the house of Judah. So Zechariah is telling us that out of the tribe of Judah comes the cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow. All three of these phrases would have been very familiar to Zechariah's audience because they were phrases that the prophets used. So they all emphasize strength, initiative, stability and leadership, absolutely everything that Israel desperately needed. The cornerstone symbolizes steadfast or rock-hard strength on which an entire edifice can depend. Both the Old and New Testaments frequently use this designation for Christ. We find it in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. This stone holds up the walls. He gives stability. In Acts 4, 11, and 12, Peter boldly declared, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. Paul tells us in Ephesians two twenty. You have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And what Zechariah is saying is that Christ is the one who's going to come and give stability to Israel. Now, the second description of this divine redeemer is as a tent peg. And in the Hebrew, it referred to two different kinds of nails or pegs. One was a tent stake, like we think of today. You know, when you pitch a tent, you run ropes from the corners, those of you who are campers, and you put it in the ground, and hopefully your tent stays up, and you can get inside of it. And that is one picture we get from this, and that Jesus is the nail, that secures and holds Israel together, but there is another meaning for this word. For this word, back then, uh, when they pitched tents, they did not have pop-up, pup tents like we have today. They had large tents, and right in the middle would be a giant pole, kind of like a, a ship's mast that that supported the whole tent. So there were no walls to hang anything on, so a large nail would be driven into the pole and everything the family had of value would hang on that. Isaiah chapter 22 verses 23 and 4 is a real interesting reference to this because it uses the same word as for tent peg. I will drive him like a peg or a tent peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they'll hang on him all the glory of his father's house and it continues. Well, Zechariah 6, if you look back there, 6 verse 13 tells us that that the branch, in, in verse 14 as well, the branch is the one who will bear the glory and sit and rule on his throne. So this is another picture of Jesus being the one on whom the glory of the father dwells. Everything of value that we have hangs on Jesus. And the third reference in this verse to the bow of battle represents the coming conqueror that's going to vanquish all of God's enemies when he returns. If you go back to uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, For I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. In this verse, God is pictured as if he is an archer pulling a bow. But in chapter 10, we see that God is portrayed as the battle bow itself. He is a conqueror without equal. He is a warrior who will come and utterly destroy his enemies. So this is our picture of our deliverer. He's a rock solid cornerstone. He displays the glory of God and he is the absolute conqueror of all the enemies of God. And this mighty Messiah and deliverer is also a transformer because he's going to transform the wandering sheep into mighty men in verse 5. They will be as mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. They will fight for the Lord will be with them. The riders on horse will be put to shame. So the Lord is not going to do all the fighting. This is not a picture of, oh, I'll just let go and let God. But this is a picture of triumphant conquest in the face of overwhelming odds. It's men on foot against men on horses. The odds are not evenly stacked. And the fact that they fight at all and don't flee in retreat has only one explanation. The Lord is with them. It is the perfect picture Of Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the world is going to be utterly shocked when the king of kings comes with his mighty people Israel to win the great and final battle. Well, as we move to the second half of the chapter, we see from verses 6 through 12, that God promises to restore and strengthen all of his people. Verse 6 says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them back because I had compassion on them. And the emphasis here is on the Lord is the one who will strengthen and deliver his people. I will strengthen, I will save, I will bring them back. Why? Because God has compassion on his people. God's motivation for everything he does is his love and compassion for his people. They will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. God is going to fully restore them, and it will seem as if he had not rejected them at all. This is a picture of total restoration. They will not be restored merely to the land, not merely to freedom, but to God and to his presence. I will answer them means that God is listening. They will experience what God intended in the first place, a relationship with the king of heaven himself. Well, why is he going to do this? Because he says, I am the Lord their God. I am Jehovah. Jehovah is my covenant-keeping name. I made them a promise back in Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to keep it. Verse 7, uh, Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will, ag- will rejoice in the Lord. So just as Judah will become like mighty men, in verse 5, we learn that Ephraim will be like a mighty warrior. And this transformation from lost scattered sheep to a mighty warrior Brings joy, and Zechariah describes this joy as someone who's had a little too much wine. Their heart will be glad as if from wine. They are happy. Whole families and generations will see God's deeds and rejoice. Isaiah uh, put it this way, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. And when the Redeemer comes and justice is needed out against the enemy and restoration is brought to the nation, the natural response is joy. And finally, their history will make sense to them. Well, in the next few verses, Zechariah paints a picture for the people of what this return looks like. Verse 8, I will whistle for them to gather them together for I've redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. This is just, what a sweet heartwarming picture this is. And you may have read that uh, Middle Eastern shepherds would make uh, whistles or from uh, reed pipes and they could blow in them and the sheep could be scattered all over the hillside when they heard that sound back they would come or if one sheep got lost didn't know where everybody else was the the shepherd could whistle for it so it would know where to go the jews knew exactly what jesus was talking about when he said i am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice and the lord says i will whistle for them because as the shepherd he knows exactly where the sheep are because he is the one who scattered them I've redeemed them, conveys the thought that they've been brought out of bondage. So verse 9 is pretty profound. It tells us that God scattered Israel among the peoples, first the house of Joseph into Assyria, and then the house of Judah into Babylonia. Though I scattered them among the nations, they will remember me in far countries, and they and their children will live and come back. And there's a word play here um, with the Hebrew word zera. And it means to both scatter and to plant. So with one hand, when you're sowing seed, if you've sown grass seed or wildflower seed in a field, you're sowing it, but you're also scattering it. And at the same time, you're planting it where you want it to be. So by, even though God was scattering he was by grace planning his people for a day to come. Even as he scattered them, he said, I have planted them among the nations. And this is an unbelievably marvelous example of God redeeming the sin of his people. Though he scattered them in judgment, because of his grace, he makes this dispersal a thing of blessing and the means of a far greater salvation. The punishment of exile if you think about it, was the means of opening the door for the gospel. God does not forget the seed any more than a farmer would forget the crop he planted. And in due time, the seed that falls into the ground and dies will bear much fruit. So I want you to think about this with me for a minute. Think about the early church. The gospel was first given to the Jews in Jerusalem, and many believed. They finally understood that Jesus was the Messiah. But the false teachers and shepherds, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they all hardened their hearts against the truth even more. And severe persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and the church was scattered. The apostles were all scattered. Think about Philip. He met the Ethiopian eunuch who was coming to Jerusalem to worship God. He was the seed that had been planted. Think about the apostle Paul and his journeys. In Lystra, he finds Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. She'd been scattered. She'd been planted. Then Paul goes to Europe in Acts 16, and the first person he encountered on European soil was a Jewish woman who worshipped God. That's how she was described. Lydia, the seller of purple. All of these people were seeds that had been scattered and sown by God for his own purposes and glory. And the Jews will again be scattered in 70 AD when Jerusalem is attacked and the temple is destroyed beyond destruction by the Romans. They're going to be scattered again. Well, Zechariah continues, they will remember me in far countries and they with their children will live and come back. I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. And this is reminiscent of the vision Zechariah saw back in chapter 2, where he told us that Jerusalem would be inhabited without walls because of the multitudes. And the, the geography Zechariah mentions here is not arbitrary. Gilead refers to the region of the land that was occupied by the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And it was the territory through which Israel first approached the promised land under Moses. So it's naturally going to be the route of the exiles returning from Egypt. Lebanon is used to define the northernmost part of the promised land, and it would be the path of those returning from Assyria. God is bringing them back to the land he promised long ago. And they will pass through the sea of distress and he will strike the waves of the sea so that the depths of the Nile will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. The return to the promised land is the final exodus for Israel. The people have been redeemed and they will come home. Wow. The imagery is a mighty deliverance by the Lord, and he uses the same one when he brought them out of Egypt with his mighty hand by parting the Red Sea. The Lord himself will lead his people, and he can easily remove any obstacles. He can bring down the pride of their enemies. He can remove the scepters, just as he did, to Assyria and Egypt. Verse 12, and I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. Not only will the Lord save them and bring them back to the land, he will revive them. There will be spiritual revival. Hearts of stone will turn to hearts of flesh, and their response will be what God intended all along. Well, clearly, spiritual revival has not yet happened in Israel, but God is setting the stage with the return of the Jews to the land. He will call them. He will whistle for them with his word, just as he used his word to call each one of us who believe. They will recognize and worship their Messiah at long last. Amen and amen. So you have handouts in the back. One describes... um, the, t- the kind of a picture of the timeline of the Jews returning to Israel. The other gives you a timeline for the end times, so you can kind of plug in some of these prophecies that we've been looking about, looking at, and you can see kind of where they fit in. But just quick, quick, quick! Three points of application. One, idols are a danger for all of us. We all need to ask ourselves the questions: What are the things you turn to to comfort? Do those things bring you godly comfort, drawing you closer to the Lord, or do they stand between you and God and become a barrier and ultimately a stronghold? You know, chocolate can be very comforting, but it can ultimately become a stronghold. This is the voice of experience. Two, are you growing where you've been planted? It's no accident you are where you are. Are you growing in your relationship with the Lord and glorifying him in your home? in your neighborhood, in the community. He's put you right where he wants you to be. And I think the last thing we need to do is to remember to pray for Israel and her people. Pray that God opens their hearts to believe. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for Israel, and we pray that you will whistle for them and they will hear your voice through your word. We pray that we would hear your voice through your word as well. And I I thank you for how difficult this is, how you challenge us through this, and how, how you, the Great One, humbled yourself uh, to be our Redeemer. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.